Did God have his hand over the founding of America? Was it a bastion of freedom or a center for slavery? What were Sunday blue laws and how are they connected to the mark and the image of the beast? How can believers stand faithful to God in the events to come? Join us for answers to these questions and more as we trace America's role in Bible prophecy from its beginnings all the way down till just before Jesus comes again. They were finally off. 102 passengers and about 25 ship crew, the open waters ahead and no land in sight. The sway of the ship and the salty spray of Atlantic Ocean waves would likely lose their novelty in the weeks to come. But for now, excitement filled every heart. They were pilgrims. The year was 1620. Who were these people? Why were they so desperately launching out into a new world? Well, in England, worship was required by law, and believing the customs of the English church to be corrupted with idolatry, a group of separatist Christians knew that not joining in worship as a part of the state-approved church, they would face imprisonment, exile, and death. They found refuge on the friendly shores of the Dutch Republic. But after a decade or so, persecution from England managed to reach them even there. Their hope of a land of religious freedom? North America. Finally, after 66 days, a massive storm nearly wiping them out with uh, waves over 30 meters, that's 100 feet high, on September 20, they saw land. They were hundreds of miles off course, but it didn't matter. Hoping to create their new home on the wild shores of the Hudson River, the group docked in Plymouth Bay instead. This would become the Plymouth Bay Colony, if they survived. It was just the start of winter, and one of the 87 pilgrims aboard wrote about this new land. He said, It's a hideous and desolate wilderness filled with wild beasts and wild men. Within the first four months of that brutal winter, 45 out of the 102 colonists died. The pilgrims didn't know if they could even make it to spring. But late that winter, out of the wilderness, walking straight into the colony, some unlikely saviors uh, found their way. Two Native American men, and one of them spoke in English. An Abenaki Native American named Samoset had learned English from some of the English fishing camps off the coast of Maine. Soon he came back with his friend Squanto, who spoke amazing English. Squanto had been taken to Spain as a slave, eventually made his way to England, and finally came back home in 1619, just a year earlier. Squanto lived with the pilgrims for 20 months, teaching them to fish, and since the seeds that they had brought over from England mostly failed, he helped them to plant and cultivate food as well. These pilgrims developed very friendly relationships with the Native American tribes, trading and interacting together in positive ways. One of the pilgrim women, pregnant when they left England, um, ended up giving birth as they were docked in Cape Cod. The first pilgrim baby was born into the new world, Peregrine White. It just so happens that my mother's great-great-grandfather was named James White, and he and his parents traced their lineage back to the first pilgrim baby, Peregrine White. Pretty neat, but not unique. About 35 million people around the world today have descended from those Plymouth pilgrims. They were fruitful and multiplied. One historian named Bancroft wrote, they were content to earn a bare subsistence by a life of frugality and toil. 
They ask nothing from the soil but the reasonable returns of their own labor. They patiently endured the privations of the wilderness, watering the tree of liberty with their tears and with the sweat of their brow till it took deep root in the land. After they had survived that first winter and harvested their first crop of fruit and vegetables, the pilgrims, along with the Native Americans that they had befriended, sat down together to thank God for bringing them through. This was the first Thanksgiving meal, and it would become a great American holiday. Every single year since 1621, it's been celebrated, and not just in America. This past November, my wife Sharissa and I got to go over to our co-presenter, Lyle Southwell's home, and with he and his wife, Shell, who happens to be American, we enjoyed a massive, delicious meal. Family, friends, faith, and fantastic food have characterized Thanksgiving for nearly 400 years. By the way, next year marks exactly 400 years since the first Thanksgiving. And it all began with those Plymouth pilgrims. But these weren't the first English settlers on America's shore. Thirteen years earlier, in 1607, a ship from London, funded by a group of British entrepreneurs who were seeking gold, silver, and a passage to the Orient, landed on the coast of Virginia, founding Jamestown, named, of course, after the English king. This was the first successful British settlement, but its beginnings could hardly be called a success. With the proud English gentlemen being too civilized to get their hands dirty in farming, 62 out of the 100 of them died within the first winter. If it wasn't for the kindness of a Native American tribe who shared their corn, they all likely would have died. The year quickly passed and the second winter was no better. Sadly, due to Native American attacks, disease, and the worst famine in 800 years, of the now 500 settlers in Jamestown, 440 died. Just 60 were left. Eventually, treaties with the local Powhatan tribe would enable them to make it by, and the settlement really took off when they discovered tobacco. It became all the craze back in London, and Jamestown began farming and exporting it across the sea. This fattened the wallets of the colonists, but at a very high cost. Now this is amazing. Two main groups of English settlers first came to the New World, Jamestown and Plymouth. They came within 13 years of each other and both struggled with a rough crossing, hunger, disease, and uh, difficulty, various setbacks in their settlements. But neither of them thought that they would shape the future of a nation. But the huge difference that they left was their legacy. Because of their motives for going, Jamestown was a money-making investment, but Plymouth was about seeking religious freedom. The Jamestown colony became successful by planting tobacco in 1619, and the legacy passed down to us today is this. The deadly effects of tobacco use, slavery due to the need for farm workers, and racism that comes along with slavery. By and large, they killed off the Native Americans around them, starting with the very ones that saved their lives after they arrived. But on the other hand, those pilgrims of Plymouth, we see from them a heritage of religious freedoms and education. In order that ministers could spread the gospel, Harvard was founded nearby in 1636. And today, nearly 40 colleges and universities are within one hour of Boston. Instead of killing the natives to steal their food like the Jamestown group, in contrast with the love of Jesus, 
these pilgrims sat down at the Thanksgiving dinner table with the Native Americans whom they had come to know and love. Two small groups that left huge legacies, both without realizing the lasting impact that they would make, all because one existed for selfish gain and the other for selfless service. Besides Jamestown in the south and the Plymouth pilgrims up north, though, soon there arrived others in search of a new life. English Puritans arrived in Massachusetts. And while some were kind and godly people, their staunch beliefs of predeterminism made most of them dogmatic and harsh, eventually even creating a climate that led to innocent people dying in the Salem witch trials. It's no wonder that historians like H.L. Mencken have said, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. We know they must have had some fun, though, because uh, we have historical records of them having archery competitions and other sports competitions uh, together. And the Puritans tried to make people holy, though, by legislating morality. And some of the laws they passed forbade the use of using dice or playing cards, and some even governed the way that people dressed. One law forbade women from wearing lace, and another stated the acceptable length and width of a lady's sleeve. Dresses had to be long enough to drag on the floor because surely no self-respecting woman would ever show any ankle. <laughs> there were also laws forbidding swearing in public. And interestingly enough, most of these old laws still sit in America's law books today. Just earlier this year, Virginia legislators finally repealed a centuries-old law against cursing in public. Every once in a while, there are stories like Timothy Boomer, who became known in 1999 as the Cussing Canoeist. After his canoe hit a rock and he tipped out into Michigan's Rifle River, he let out a string of curse words in an angry tirade. A police officer who was patrolling the river gave him a fine and he was charged for, the, for swearing in front of children. He could have spent 90 days in jail, but instead the judge threw the case out. This seems crazy to us today. I mean, sadly, children can hear swearing if they get on the wrong YouTube video uh, on their parents' phone. Now, while these mandates from the 16 and 1700s seem to us today to be nothing more than laughable laws, the punishments were no joke. In Maryland in 1723, there was a law that anyone caught swearing, speaking blasphemy or cursing God would, and I quote, for the first offense, be bored through the tongue and fined 20 pounds sterling. For the third offense, the penalty was death without benefit of the clergy. That's from the American State Papers. But the laws didn't stop at forbidding swearing. They even enforced worship. For example, in Virginia in 1610 was the first of these types of laws, and it was required that all attend divine services on Sunday mornings. Everyone had to go to church, in other words. Now, if someone chose to stay at home, first, they would lose their allowance for the week. Second, they would be whipped publicly. And the third time, they were to suffer death. And these weren't just empty threats. The Puritans even tyrannized their own citizens. They arrested a sea captain and locked him in stocks after kissing his wife on a Sunday. John Lewis and Sarah Chapman were two lovers that were brought to justice for sitting together on Sunday under an apple tree in Goodman Chapman's orchard. One man fell into a pond on his way to church, and so he skipped church so that his suit could dry, and they whipped the poor man in the name of Jesus, supposedly. What shocking legalism. 
This was the same spirit as the medieval church of Europe, who was responsible for as many as 150 million deaths during the Dark Ages, all for not believing and worshiping as the church deemed fit. What a sad picture. Here were Christians who had decried the errors of Europe's church-state systems, now doing much of the same thing. Their attitude was, believe what I believe, support what I support, or die. Sound familiar? Kind of like some of the movements afoot today. Now, while these old laws are seen as archaic to us today and lie mostly dormant on the United States law books, you'll be shocked to learn that today there are many individuals and organizations pushing for one type of these laws to return. And we're going to look at it more closely in presentation number seven, so don't miss it. Now, not all the Christian leaders went along with these draconian laws. One man who stood up against the persecuting Puritan powers was Roger Williams. He arrived in Massachusetts in 1631 and protested their legislated legalism. Williams declared it to be the duty of the civil rulers to restrain crime, but never to control the conscience. He said, and I quote, when they attempt to prescribe a man's duties to God, they are out of place and there can be no safety. For it is clear that if the magistrate has the power, he may decree one set of opinions and beliefs today and another tomorrow, as has been done in England by different kings and queens and by different popes and councils in the Roman church, so that belief would become a heap of confusion. Now, Roger Williams was respected and he was a much loved, faithful Christian minister. But this didn't matter to the leaders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They saw his ideas as dangerous and planned to arrest him. Williams escaped, thankfully, but into a forest, and it was the dead of winter. He says, For 14 weeks I was sorely tossed in a bitter season, not knowing what bed or bread did mean. But the ravens fed me in the wilderness, and he found often a hollow of a tree to serve him as a shelter. He continued his exile through the snowy forest until he found refuge with a Native American tribe who he had befriended before while sharing the gospel with them. After months with no real place to call home, Williams made his way finally to the Narragansett Bay where he laid the foundations of a new state. The capital? Providence. Appropriately a name since God had provided for all of his needs. The colony? Rhode Island. This was the first state of modern times to fully recognize the right of religious freedom. All were free to worship or not worship God as they believed right. Jews, Catholics, and Quakers, the irreligious, they were all welcome and as full-fledged citizens. Roger Williams, Rhode Island, the tiniest of all 50 states, grew and prospered until its founding principles of civil and religious liberty became the cornerstones of the American Republic. Before moving on from the topic of religious freedom, a quick story. As a boy in the old town in Virginia, James Madison heard a fearless Baptist minister preaching, but out of the window of a prison cell. From that day on, there was in his heart a burning desire to protect freedom of conscience for the entire nation. Tirelessly, he worked, along with others that shared the same passion, until the first 10 amendments of the U.S. Constitution were made. The First Amendment powerfully starts, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. 
freedom of religion. Thanks to Madison and these others, this would become a guarantee in America. As the 1700s marched on, the feeble and isolated colonies grew into a confederation of powerful states, and the world marked with wonder the peace and prosperity of a new nation. The colonies were growing rapidly. Because of low death rates and ample supplies of land and food, heavy flows of immigrants made their way to America's shores, not only from England, but from Germany, Scotland, Ireland, Poland, people from all over seeking a new life. In the 100 years between 1700 and 1800, the population of the United States grew over 21 times from about 250,000 uh, to over 5.3 million. But not all of these numbers were something to be proud of. Nearly 17% of the 5.3 million people were slaves. That's about one in every five or six people. Around 900,000 individuals in North America were slaves. In the year 1619, a British privateered ship flying a Dutch flag arrived in Jamestown with about 20 of the continent's first African slaves. The sick wickedness of slavery had infected North America. And it wasn't just Africans, it was Native Americans too. Between 1670 and 1715, in those 45 years, it's estimated that between 24,000 and 51,000 captive Native Americans were exported from South Carolina. And that was more than the number of Africans imported for slavery during that same period. But Africans and Native Americans weren't the only ones being brought in chains to work farms and plantations in America's South. Prisoners from England were sent over as well. In 1718, the Brits passed the Transportation Act and began sending over their prison convicts to be sold as indentured servants for people in America. Historians estimate that there were around 60,000 prisoners literally shipped off to North America in a period of 57 years. That's an average of about 1,000 people every year. And these passengers of the king, as they were called, weren't just men. Some women convicts were also transported to the colonies, sometimes even for crimes as small as being lewd, it was said, or walking the streets past 10 p.m. Typically, getting banished to America was for either 7 or 14 years, and a convict could go back to England after his time. But 90% of them ended up staying in North America. And, I mean, if I got thrown in jail and shipped halfway across the world for swearing or being out past 10 p.m., I wouldn't want to go back to England either. After America began the war for their independence in 1774, England could no longer send their convicts to America. So, they decided on Australia. My wife didn't want me to include that, but hey, it's history. As the 18th century went on, tensions built in North America. It wasn't just England that occupied the continent. They were on the East Coast, but west of the 13 colonies was a big chunk of territory that France occupied. From Newfoundland and Quebec in the Northeast, across the Great Lakes and down the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico, and west of, Spain, west of France was Spain. They owned virtually all of the still very wild west. But some of this was about to change. In 1754 erupted a war, the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War, 
a distant skirmish in the Ohio River Valley launched England and France into a long and bloody war. Not only was it being fought on the American front, but as far as the Mediterranean Sea and even in India. Eventually, British armies invaded and conquered Canada. France had already lost the battle in India and they saw that defeat was not far distant. After negotiations failed with England, the King of Spain, Charles III, offered to come to the aid of his cousin, the King of France, Louis XV. Together they signed an alliance known as the Family Compact on August 15, 1761. The compact basically said that if the war didn't end by May 1, 1762, Spain would enter the war with France against England. And this actually ended up happening. The three nations militarily duked it out around the globe until the Treaty of Paris in 1763. But the Family Compact in 1761 pretty much ended the war in North America, I mean, for the most part. Hence the name Seven Years' War. Now here's the relevant point to all of this for our message. After the war, France pulled out of North America, leaving half of it to Spain and half of it to England. Everything west of the Mississippi was Spain's and everything east of the Mississippi was England's. England's territory in North America had just doubled. However, the fruits of victory brought the seeds of trouble with Great Britain and the American colonies. The Brits had won the war, but at a high cost, literally. It had been extremely expensive, and the King of England felt it was only fair that colonists pay heavy taxes to make up the deficit. The Stamp Act was passed, basically taxing everything printed on paper. And this was a terrible burden that was heavier than what the colonists were willing to bear. Not so much because the tax was so high, but because they had no direct representation in Parliament who levied the tax. Finally, after four months of widespread protest, the British Parliament repealed it. But the taxation monster reared its ugly head again. And American colonists were getting tired of being ruled by a king in a castle across the sea. Colonists began boycotting English goods, which was the most significant way that they could hurt the pocketbook of the king. Eventually, in 1773, colonists dressed up as Native Americans, boarded a British tea ship in Boston Harbor, and dumped about $1 million worth of tea overboard into the waters. It was known as the Boston Tea Party, and this was a tipping point. The people began to rally for war. Now back during the Seven Years' War, a few decades before, a lieutenant colonel had outshined all of his fellow officers. George Washington was his name. As time went on, Washington was finding himself feeling less and less like an Englishman and more like a Virginian. He would be the one to lead the way in the War of Independence, the Revolutionary War. In the words of a historian, his enduring fortitude, his military prowess, his influence, had sustained the spirit of the revolution, crowned it with success, and earned for himself the glorious preeminence of being the first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. George Washington became the first president or commander-in-chief of the United States. 
The Revolutionary War, though, went on for seven years, and though the King of England didn't recognize the United States as a free and independent nation until 1783, when a treaty was signed in Paris, America's actual birth was in 1776. The Revolutionary War had waged for over a year. The date was July 4. Representatives from all of the colonies, great statesmen, many men of intellect and piety came together to draft sign, and send to the King of England the Declaration of Independence. This mix of pioneers and prisoners, of Puritans and pilgrims, had become its own country. And not just any country, but a nation that would provide economic opportunity, religious freedom, and civil liberty to all who would seek them, the United States of America. Beautifully summarizing the spirit of America, the preamble of the Declaration of Independence reads, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As we saw earlier, James Madison would later help to write the First Amendment to the Constitution, guaranteeing that the government would not make a law either prescribing and enforcing, nor forbidding any form of religion. There was a clear separation between church and states, between government and religion. Many of the chapters of what was happening on America's shores were dark and terrible, and no doubt broke the heart of God. Things like the brutal slavery of the tobacco and cotton fields of the South, or wiping out Native American tribes in the name of manifest destiny. But when it came to the structure of government and the writing of documents like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution with its various amendments, it is as though a divine hand was guiding, overruling, so that this nation, in its laws and founding principles, would be a bastion of freedom, both civil and religious freedom. The majority of the men who drafted these amazing documents and who set up the United States system of government were Protestant Christians or deists. When they came together, they actually deliberated for over four weeks, and finally they concluded with what felt to be the best system of government. Three branches, and interestingly enough, the Bible was the first most quoted book among these founding fathers, but the second most quoted individual was a French political philosopher named Charles Montesquieu, and his concept of the ideal human government was that it should be divided into three branches, the judicial, the legislative, and the executive. And I just learned actually a few days ago that he got this idea from the Bible. Isaiah 33 verse 22 says, The Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. Amazing. All three branches of government represented there in that Bible verse. Of course, all the founding fathers knew that imperfect human beings would tend to grasp for more power than they should. So they set up the branches, each individual one, with certain powers with checks and balances having extra checks on the executive branch, uh, which is the president, of course, since the Founding Fathers recognized that this branch would most likely be the one in danger of becoming like a king. In the words of James Madison, Americans wanted a church without a pope 
and a state without a king. And basing the system of government on Montesquieu, who based his idea on the Bible, a solid foundation was set. The message was being sung in the land. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. Speaking of freedom ringing, the Great Liberty Bell in Philadelphia has a Bible verse on it. Leviticus 25 verse 10 inscribed on the bell says this, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Though it would be nearly 100 more years until the sin of slavery would be stamped out, and though fraught with flaws and imperfections and imperfect people, the hand of an almighty God had directed the founding fathers of the United States to set up a constitution and a system of government so that America could be one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. For a video of this series, visit our website at theend.digital or find us on social media.